And turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Be reading verses 13 through 16. And considering the faith of the dying. Hebrews 11 verses 13 through 16. Give attention to God's holy word. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed them, uh, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Let us pray. Heavenly Fathers, we just sang in Psalm 22 the great reward of the cross is that Christ would be crowned to proclaim your name in the midst of us, His brethren. We pray that you would fulfill his dying by rewarding him now to proclaim his name among us by the Spirit. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Death reveals the man. It is when we are at the brink of death that all earthly supports are taken away. And we are left naked before God and eternity. This moment is often horrific. Fears long buried come to the surface. Regrets long harbored sail forth into the mind and heart. Pain, sorrow, loss all come to the foreground, though suppressed during life. Cries of protest against the reaper's approach chill the heart and fill the mind with horror. Please, for mama, express the one hope of the dying soldier. These moments are often horrific because these moments are passed without faith. For the saint, these moments are often otherwise. They set the stage for some of the most memorable expressions of faith. Many a saint on the edge of eternity has preached a sermon more eloquent than Spurgeon, Knox, or Owen. These moments are often the most hopeful because they are past in faith. In our passage, we're given a picture of this faith the faith of the dying. And what we learn is that the faith of the dying looks beyond earth to their happy reception in heaven. We have three parts to our passage, faith, earth, and heaven. Verses 13 and 14 are faith, 
Verse 15 is earth. Verse 16 is heaven. Faith, earth, and heaven. And so we begin by looking at verses 13 and 14. Faith. You notice the author begins and he speaks about the characters he's written about up to this point. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. Now, it's important to note here that uh, faith and sight are contrasted. He says that they died in faith. They did not die in sight. They didn't actually uh, lay hold of the thing that was promised to them. They died in faith having only the promise. There are those who will die in sight, by the way. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians that when the Lord returns, those who are dead in Christ will be raised and those who are still alive at the Lord's coming will be transformed in an instant. That's what it means to die in sight. When you see the Lord return, then you're transformed. Most of us, however, will die in faith. The contrast of these two ideas is important to notice. By faith means that what God has promised, we have no evidence for except His Word. This faith is based solely upon God's Word, not on evidence, signs, emotion, success, or failure. There is no evidence to support this faith except God's Word itself. Remember how Hebrews 11 begins. He begins by defining faith, and the author said this, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so for him to say that they died in faith means that when they are dying, they have nothing except the promise and faith. And that's how they died. Now by sight, on the other hand, it means that we have evidence outside of God's word for that which he has promised. Archaeology, signs, wonders, emotion, success, Failure, all of these things are what it means to, to uh, be able to believe in something by sight. You can see something else that you perceive that supports what you believe. Now, sight is not a bad thing. It's often a great encouragement to faith, but it is not faith itself. You remember what uh, our brother read before the pastoral prayer. Many believed in Christ because of what? the miracles that they saw. But Christ knew that this kind of faith is not what he's looking for. He's looking for faith in the heart that is supported by nothing but God's Word. Secondarily, we have to remember that true saving faith does not rest on sight. The faith of the dying, the faith that we've been reading about in this chapter is based exclusively on the authority of God's Word. And it's important that the author now brings our attention to the faith of the dying because as we're going to see, when you die, you have nothing except God's Word 
and faith. This is how we understand the sacraments, isn't it? The sacraments are visible signs and seals given to strengthen our faith. They're not given to replace our faith. We're not Roman Catholics. We don't believe that if you eat the bread, you somehow magically receive the grace. We believe that if you eat the bread and by faith trust in the promise, you receive the grace. Faith and sight are contrasted. He says at the second part of this opening sentence, they died in faith not having received the promises. Hence, they died in faith and not in sight. This is really the the conflict that death presents us with, isn't it? Death is the universal experience of mankind, and yet it cannot be taught. I used to teach Latin for a long time, and I can teach you many things from my experience of the Latin language, and you too can come to experience the Latin language, and we can experience Latin together. It's a great experience. Death is the universal human experience, and yet nobody can teach it to you. Because once you experience death, you're gone. You cannot pass that on to another. When one dies, they are alone to face the void. Psalm 88 gives gives expression to this. Turn to Psalm 88. Psalm 88, verse 3. The psalmist prays and he describes often what it is like to approach the grave. My soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. When we approach death, this reality becomes unavoidable. But the author says, these died in faith. They didn't die without faith. And then he gives a description of the faith that they died with. We see in the next section of verse 13, faith in action. This is what faith looks like when it approaches the grave or when it is uh, in this life before the grave comes. Notice how he describes faith in action. He says that they died in faith not having received the promises, but they saw them afar off. They, as it were, could perceive that the promise was out there, but not yet. And they were looking to that promise to be fulfilled, and this is how they died. Now, ultimately, all of the promises of God, all of the things that we hope for as Christians, are the return of Christ. Look at Hebrews 9.28. Hebrews 9.28. Uh, starting in verse 27. 
And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear the second time, apart from sin, for salvation. And so these died in faith, not having received the promises, but seeing them afar off. Not only did they see the promises afar off, not only did they know that Christ was coming, they were also persuaded of them. Look at what he says, or assured of them, as the New King James has it. The the sense uh, of the word that's used here is not that they sit in judgment and the promises come and present their evidence and the Unbelief comes and presents its evidence, and then we weigh out which evidence is better and say, yes, that one is correct. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here means to submit under. It it means to be uh, overwhelmed with the promise and to surrender to it. That's what it means to be persuaded. They saw them afar off. They were persuaded or assured of the promises And ultimately, in the promises, it is to submit to the authority of God in the promises. This is ultimately what faith does. Westminster Confession, chapter 1, speaks about the authority of God's Word. And it says that there are many evidences, there are many reasons why we would highly regard God's Word. The testimony of the church, the consent of the ages, the eloquence of the style, the scope of the whole, the perfect discovery it makes of man's sinful condition. All of these things evidence that it is God's Word. But the only way to receive it and the only way to submit to it is to recognize God's authority in it by the persuasion of the Holy Ghost. This is what it means to be assured of the promises. This is what happened to Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 9. Turn to Acts chapter 9. You perhaps know the story. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Then Saul... Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Just just consider. Paul will say in 2 Timothy, I am the chief of sinners. I think sometimes we downplay what Paul is saying. We, We think he's overstating it. I don't think he's overstating it. Paul was a bloody, persecuting man. Breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might drag them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. Suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Paul was assured of the promises. He was brought to submit to the authority of Christ in the word. I think it's interesting when Christ says, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Paul knew his Bible. 
He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. And I think there was a conflict in Paul's conscience. He knew the Scriptures, but he was determined to kick against what the Word of God said. And until the Holy Spirit gave him this vision of Christ and threw him off his horse, he did not submit until he was assured by the testimony of the Holy Ghost. That's what it means to be assured of the promises. So they see the promises afar off. They are assured of them. But they also embrace them. That's the next word that our author uses. They saw them afar off. They were assured of them. And they embraced them. You know, this word embrace, it means to greet. means to welcome. It means to hug. I mean, the, the, the image here is, think if you go over to a good friend's house, maybe to your grandmother's house or to a close relative or to just a very close friend's house, and as you, you come to the door, the, the door flings wide open, the kids come running out, the father is standing there, the wife is there, and as you come up the steps, they embrace you and welcome you into the home. That's what it means to embrace the promises. They not only saw them, they not only were persuaded of them, but they clung tightly to them. And they greeted them and said, you are all that I have. Welcome into my heart. They embraced the promises. Paul the Apostle illustrates what this looks like in Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Very famous passage. Paul saw the Lord. He was persuaded that the Lord was the Lord, and he embraced the Lord. Philippians 3, verse 8. Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him, that I may embrace Him and know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's what it means to embrace the promises. Paul counts everything lost so long as I can be raised with Christ. So long as I can be found in Him. They saw the promises. They were persuaded of the promises. They embraced the promises. They also confessed. See this next word that our author uses in verse 13. They saw them afar off. They were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed. Uh, They were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. The word here simply means to admit or to acknowledge. It means to give open confession to the truth of something that one knows. And and the idea with this word, there's always this idea of a a, uh, compulsion. There's always an irresistibility to this confession. This kind of confession is like when you set a kettle on the stove and you're getting ready to make the tea, and as the the water heats up, 
there is a compulsion in the water that it eventually has to confess the water's boiling. That's the idea behind this word. There's a compulsion that when faith enters the heart and the promises are embraced, the spirit begins to boil up with the fire from heaven and then confession is made with the mouth. Even as Paul the Apostle said in Romans 10, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. So they confessed. And what did they confess? They confessed something about themselves. Look at what they say. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This means... And when we embrace the promises of the gospel, we confess that this world, this life, is not our home. Having been called by the gospel to God's eternal glory, as we heard in the charge to young Casey, God has called us with the calling of the gospel, and that calling is to nothing less than his own eternal glory. When you embrace that promise, you're also confessing at the same time that this world is passing away. In this life, I can find nothing that satisfies. I am a stranger and a pilgrim. I'm simply passing through. We confess that the thing we desire is ultimately not to be found in this life. Verse 14, he adds a little bit more. He he interprets this confession. He says, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. The Greek word that's used here for homeland is patria. means a fatherland. means one's own native country. One's own place. This, by the way, was the original purpose of man's creation, wasn't it? God made the earth and all things in it, and he made a beautiful garden. He made everything perfect, comfortable, pleasant, and fitting so that he could bring his creature, man, and place him in the garden, and man would have a place, a homeland to live in forever. But sin happened, and exile was the result. Hence, No settled place in this world will ever satisfy. There is no abiding home in this life that will ever satisfy the heart. Now, we need to be careful. Uh, I should say this. That no settled place in this world will ever satisfy if God is absent. You see, the great tragedy of the fall in the garden was... Not that Adam was kicked out of the garden and he couldn't enjoy the beauty of the plants. He couldn't enjoy the peace of the mountaintop. He couldn't enjoy the drink of the four rivers that came from the garden. That wasn't the tragedy. The tragedy was that God is no longer with him. And so that wherever man might go, if God is not there, he can never find a settled home. But if God is there, it doesn't matter where man finds himself. He's in his dwelling place. This is what Moses prays in Psalm 90, you may recall. 
O Lord, from generation to generation, You have been our dwelling place. So there is no settled country with God absent that will satisfy. Now we do need to say, however, this does not mean that temporal homelands, fatherlands, the places that we come from are unimportant. I think our age is, is very guilty of false dichotomies. We make a false contrast where there really is no conflict. Many will take this, this passage and, and this doctrine that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, heaven is our home, and what we hope for is eternal glory. That means Virginia doesn't matter. That means the United States doesn't matter. That means your hometown is worthless. Don't worry about it. These two are not in conflict. You don't need to pit them against one another. But let's return. Now keep in mind the context of what our author is dealing with. This is all spoken of in the context of dying. For it is on death's door... that this is all we have the promises embraced by faith you know as I was preparing this sermon I was, I was thinking about the passing of uh, one of my family members uh, my grandmother Charlotte whom my daughter is named after uh, Charlotte was a godly woman she raised all my aunts and uncles raised in the Lutheran church very uh, eloquent lady. She was always very precise about language. She would not let you get away with bad grammar. And as she was dying, as sadly happens with many older folks, her, her mind was starting to go. And I think perhaps one of the most frustrating things for her as she was dying and in the nursing home, her power of speech was gone. She could not express what she had for so many years been able to express at the drop of a hat. That's just one example of what death does to us. All of our earthly supports, all of the things we enjoyed in life are taken away from us. Of course, as my grandmother was dying and as her powers of mind and body were, were being taken away from her, you could see the frustration on her brow. You could see the, the anxiety, the angst, and it's, it's inevitable now that death is coming and I am being taken away against my will. Well, in God's providence, he saved me right before she died. And I had the opportunity to read the scriptures to her. She could not speak at this point. She couldn't walk. Um, she, she really could not do anything except lay in the bed. But I remember very distinctly as I, as I read the scriptures to her in her nursing home, her, her brow was furrowed and she was frustrated, can't say what she wants to say, there was probably pain. I remember reading the scriptures to her and her face softened. The hands stopped being clenched. The, the fears subsided, if just for a moment, because she was being reminded of the promises that she had trusted in. When we die, that's all that we have. So there's a very important question for us at this stage. How do we grow 
in this. How do we prepare for this? Because as may be aware to you, death comes whenever he wants. Death doesn't make appointments. Death doesn't give you a warning. Death shows up at his appointed time whenever God ordains him to show up. And that's when you go. You remember the parable that Christ told about the wealthy landowner who had a good crop and he built barns and barns and stored up goods for many years. And then the Lord says to him, fool, your life is required of you this night. Death comes when we least expect it. So how do we prepare for it? Luke 9.62 says this, He who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. What does that mean? That means the way to prepare for this is to place God's kingdom before all else. Christ says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. You don't have to wait for your deathbed to put your faith in action. The promises are right here for you to see. The promises are right here for you to submit to. The promises are right here for you to embrace. Do it by a diligent use of the means of grace. Put yourself under the promises. Live in light of the promises. Walk by faith now. So that when your sight is taken from you, you won't have a panic attack because you're already used to it. Walk by faith now. I like what Samuel Rutherford said in, in one of his letters. If you haven't read the letters of Samuel Rutherford, I highly commend them. Uh, there's a, a volume from Banner of Truth. Great man of God. He was at the Westminster Assembly. But perhaps his greatness as a man of God was not his learning or his ability to preach. It was the way he wrote about suffering and dying. Listen to what he says. This is just a sample. This is just an appetizer. Rutherford writes, he says, he's, he's speaking about uh, a crisis that's coming up. He knows it's coming, and, and he's saying, Howbeit I will possibly prove faint-hearted, unwise man in that. Yet I dare say I intend otherwise. I, I hope to not be faint-hearted. I desire not to go to the lee side or the sunny side of religion. What's he saying? He's saying, I, I don't want to go to the side where the wind is not blowing. I don't want to go to the side of religion where the, where the sun is always shining. I don't desire that. My, uh, 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 or to put truth between me and a storm. My Savior did not do so for me, who in his suffering took the windy side of the hill. No farther, but the Son of God be with you. What is he saying? He's saying that in the sufferings of this life, if the Lord should call you, embrace them, because they are reminders that the promises are all you have anyway. When you're on the windy side of the hill, Christ is there with you. Learn that now, so that when you're taken off the hill, you'll know that Christ is there with you as well. Well, we see what it is, the faith that's being described. Verse 15, he now describes earth. We said that faith looks beyond 
earth. That's what verse 15 now gives us. He continues this metaphor of a homeland. Verse 15, truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. He continues that metaphor. Mindful uh, means to remember, to call to mind, to meditate. Perhaps you've noticed, if, if you're like myself, you, you, you may say with the body, you are what you eat. The soul, you are what you think about. Whatever you're mindful of, whatever you meditate on, that's what transforms you. That you, you turn yourself into that when you call to mind the things that you call to mind. That's what the author is describing here. This is why, by the way, in the New Testament, there is so much application directed at the mind. Renew your mind. Set your mind. Think about these things. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All of this application on the mind, because the way that you and I work, what we eat is what our bodies turn into. What we set our minds on is what our souls turn into. So he says in verse 15, if they had called to mind, if they had been mindful of the earth, if they'd set their mind on things below, they would have had opportunity to return. You may know the story of Julius Caesar when he invaded the island of Britannia, something I experienced in my Latin teaching days. When Caesar brought his legions over the English Channel and they got to the island of Britannia, they were outnumbered, they had no supply, and Caesar burned the ships. You know why he did that? So they would not be mindful of returning. We're in Britannia, the ships are burned, the only way out is through. And that was the beginning of the Roman conquest of Britannia. They eventually rebuilt the ships and went home when they were done. But that's what the author is talking about here. If you're going to cast your soul upon Christ, if you hope in eternal glory with God forever, burn the ships. Don't call to mind the earth. Don't set your mind on things below, but set your mind on things above where Christ is. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ returns, you also shall appear with him in glory. Think on these things. Faith looks beyond the earth. Failure to do this, which is often a struggle for all of us, because the earth is something we can see. There's abundant evidence for the earth. This is what the scriptures speak about when they say, when they talk about double-mindedness. Remember James chapter 1, it says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives freely without um, chastising. But let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. This double-mindedness is having your left brain in heaven and your right brain on earth. That double-mindedness hinders your growth now and it may turn the hour of your death into a horror show. So we have to cultivate now getting rid of this double-mindedness. As Paul says in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above. 
Many examples of this, Psalm 45, 11. The author is writing in Psalm 45, my pen is the tongue of a ready writer, or my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. My heart is meditating great things, things concerning the king, and he praises the glory of Christ. Ride forth, gird your sword on your thigh. <coughs> and then he says to the daughter, forget your father's house, and the king will greatly desire your beauty. That's the opposite of remembering, isn't it? Forget your homeland and set your mind on the king. And you will enjoy the promises. Again, Paul writes in the same vein in Philippians 3, a great uh, chapter that expands on this theme. Philippians 3, verse 12. Notice how Paul writes. Pardon me. Uh, about maturing in his faith. Philippians 3.12 Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me, that I may embrace the one who embraced me in the cross. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the mindset. That's what it means to look past the earth. Well, what are they looking forward to? The faith of the dying looks beyond the earth to their happy reception in heaven. You notice uh, verse 16, he now describes heaven for us. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. The word desire here is a very interesting word. It's not a word that you might think. It's, it doesn't mean inner, it doesn't mean uh, internal heart desire that you just have a really strong want. That's not the word. The word actually means to stretch out the hands. And so when he says that they desire a better country, it means that they're stretching out for something better. Their whole being is reaching towards this thing. You've seen a little baby when uh, they get injured. Or maybe when they're not injured, maybe they just want to be with mommy and daddy. And they come, they come running up and you know they want to be with you when the arms go up. They're desiring your embrace because the arms go up. That's what he's describing about those who die in faith. Their arms are reaching for a better country. This is the sense of uh, excellent or higher quality. It's not more of the same, but something above and beyond what we experience here and now. He goes on and describes this as a heavenly country. I want you to think about this. Heaven is God as the reward of the covenant of grace. Let me put that another way. Heaven is God's presence in grace. Heaven is the Father's smile, the Son's embrace, 
embrace and the Spirit's joy. Heaven is God himself. And so this phrase that, that he uses here, they desire a better country that is a heavenly. It's another way of talking about desiring God himself according to all, <clears throat> all that he has promised in the covenant of grace <clears throat> and sealed in the blood of his son. <clears throat> Turn to John 21. Those who die in faith, it says that they desire a heavenly country. John 21, verse 7, we see a picture of this in Simon Peter. You know the story. Christ has died and risen again. The disciples are perhaps a little discouraged. So Christ shows himself to them once more. They're in the boat fishing. The man on the shore says, cast your net on the other side of the boat. Because they haven't caught anything. This, by the way, was the first thing that the Lord said to the disciples. One of the early things in the Gospel of Luke. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment and plunged into the sea. When Peter knew Christ is on the shore, he jumped out of the boat and went to Christ. That's what it means to desire God. That's what it means to, do, to die in faith. It's to stretch out to be with him. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to that country from which we eagerly wait for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this desire for heaven this desire for a better country we, we need to, to know a little bit more about what heaven is like to understand how to die in faith. I think sometimes in our modern age we, we tend to think of heaven as sort of empty, maybe strange and foreign. We, we don't really have a good idea of what, of what heaven is actually like, but if you look at the descriptions of heaven in the scriptures, if you look at Isaiah 6 or the book of Revelation, heaven is the dwelling place of God on his throne, in his house, and it is full of angels and departed saints. Heaven is a feast at the table of the Lamb. It is full of rejoicing, singing, fellowshipping. Heaven is bursting at the seams with the rejoicing and the party of the Lamb. That's what heaven is. And so when the author says they desire a better country, they desire to be in that heavenly realm, then it says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. You see, to die in faith means that as we're leaving this life, 
we're looking to that heavenly celebration, and those who die in faith, God comes to the door, opens it, and welcomes them in and says, I'm not ashamed of you. Come in and enjoy the reward that the Father has prepared for you. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Brothers and sisters, this is the one thing we should live for. That when we die, we may hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You are not ashamed of me in this life. I'm not ashamed of you in heaven. As we heard with Casey's vows, those who confess the name of the Father before men, Christ confesses their names before the Father in heaven. And so it says that God is not ashamed to be called their God. This is the thing. This is the one thing that makes death either a horror or a joy. Those that die in faith, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And then he says at the end, for he has prepared a city for them. In heaven we find the God and the place that we seek. We finally find the rest and the home that the call of the gospel has placed in our hearts. How will you pass your final moments? Will they be a horror to you and your loved ones? Will they echo in the minds of those who you leave behind, repeating the cry, I do not want to die. I do not want to die. I'm not ready to go. This is not the time. I can't go right now. Or will they be a testimony? Will they bear witness to you, to your children, to your grandchildren, perhaps to your great-grandchildren, that for you to live was Christ and to die is gain? How will you spend your last moments? Make sure of it now by diligently seeking him who is the rewarder of those that do so. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and we give you thanks for your promises. We give you thanks that they are more real than all the things we see in this life. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would help our unbelief, for we believe, yet we find a double-mindedness in us. This earth has such a hold upon our hearts. Please purify us of all filthiness of flesh and spirit. Mortify our flesh, that we might set our minds on things above, for we have died, and our life is hidden with Christ in you. Please cause us to strengthen our faith, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.